0: Hello, and welcome to the final week of our study through the Gospel of John. My name is Jeremy Watts, and I'm glad you could be with us. Speaking for the teaching and the writing team, I want to thank you for taking the time this summer to join us as we've looked at the I Am statements in John's Gospel. To this point, we have looked at seven statements in John's Gospel, and tonight we will look at the final one that Jesus speaks in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he is arrested. To this point, we have seen seven statements. In John chapter 6, Jesus is speaking after the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, and he states, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In John chapter 8, after dispelling a mob of religious leaders who wanted to stone the woman who was taken in adultery, Jesus stated, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This irritated the religious leaders when Jesus said this. And he only irritated them further when later in John chapter 8, Jesus stated definitively, Before Abraham was, I am. Taking upon himself the divine name that God had given to Moses all those years ago. Jesus continued to irritate and to aggravate the religious leaders in John chapter 10. When dealing with the Pharisees, he stated, I am the door of the sheep, and I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. This was a direct condemnation of the failed leadership of the people of Israel. In the Old Testament, the prophets had often compared the religious leaders and the kings to shepherds. And when Jesus stated that he himself was the true good shepherd, the one who lays down his life. He is pointing out the fault of the leaders who would not be willing to lay down their own lives. This is cemented later in John chapter 11, when Caiaphas, the acting high priest, is speaking to the other religious leaders. And as they decide that Jesus has to be taken care of, that Jesus has to be killed for the good of the nation and to secure their own authority, Caiaphas reminds them, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Jesus goes into hiding at this time, and as he's in hiding, his friend Lazarus dies in the city of Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem. Against the better wishes and the better judgment of his own disciples, Jesus returns to Bethany, and there they find that Lazarus is already dead. While comforting Martha, Lazarus's sister, At the graveside of his friend, Jesus declares to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The resurrection of Lazarus from the dead would further anger the religious leaders that they would actively seek to take him during the Passover week. Jesus decides to go into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. And in the upper room, on the night before Jesus will be crucified, he celebrates what we often refer to as the Last Supper. In that Last Supper, Jesus speaks the words of Psalm chapter 41, when he tells all of the disciples present that one of his own, a friend, will lift up his heel, will betray him. And Jesus states that he is telling them this so that when the events come to pass, all of the disciples present will know that Jesus is. Is I am. In the same conversation, Jesus tells Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. He tells Philip that if Philip has seen Jesus, then he has indeed seen the Father. After a long exchange in the upper room, Jesus and his disciples travel along the eastern outskirts of the city, past many vineyards that are there, on their way to a place called Gethsemane an olive grove at the foot of the Mount of Olives. Perhaps leaning on the scenery that was nearby and using it as an illustration, Jesus speaks the final I am statement that we have looked at so far. In John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. To this point, Jesus has been using the I am statements in two ways. Jesus has been using the I am statements first to cement his identity as God. The metaphors that he uses are allusions from the Old Testament prophets and poets that tether his humanity to a divine claim as the everlasting God of Israel. In the case of the last I am statement, referring to the true vine and the Father as the vine dresser, Jesus is also cementing his place as the true Israel, the true humanity, who is seeking to do God's will on earth. As Jesus travels to the Garden of Gethsemane, the other gospel writers inform us that Jesus will spend the night in fervent prayer, bleeding drops of blood in place of sweat as he begs the Father to take the cup away. In the end, Jesus will finally say, not my will, but yours be done. But John does not record this prayer. Instead, John records in chapter 17 a prayer that Jesus prays on the way to the garden, most likely in the presence of all of his disciples. And that prayer in John 17 begins with the words, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Everything that follows in the rest of John's gospel is an answer to that prayer. So as we turn the page into John 18, we see Jesus just after his final prayer in the spot where the other gospel writers tell us that he rouses the disciples from their sleep, to warn them that the betrayer is at hand. But in John's gospel, the story is a little bit different. Jesus takes control of the situation. John 18, verse 1 tells us that when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kedron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? I want you to notice right off the bat that very early in the account in John chapter 18, we're told that Jesus knows everything that is about to happen to him. Nothing that is about to occur takes him by surprise. If the disciples had been paying close attention, and if they also had a view of the future that Jesus held, they would have seen how everything he had said in the upper room on the night before, in his prayer on the way to the garden, and even in this final moment has led to his arrest. But the disciples don't see that because even though Jesus is in complete control, And even though Jesus has full understanding of what is about to occur to him and why, the disciples we see do not. Peter, as we'll look at a little bit later, jumps up with a sword and actually cuts the ear off of a nearby servant. These are not the actions of a man that understand that Jesus has come to die, that Jesus has come to give his life for the sheep. But Jesus understands this. And Jesus is in complete control of everything that is happening. To the point that he stands up in the face of a band of soldiers, probably some 200 strong, and asks directly, who are you looking for? Whom do you seek? The soldiers speak up, and they say that they are searching for Jesus of Nazareth, and he responds in the translation we read with three English words, I am he. As we've discussed in previous videos and in previous uh, parts of your study, that phrase, I am he, is actually just two words in Greek. Ego, me. It could be translated, I am. Commentators and Bible scholars have disagreed for hundreds of years as to what Jesus is doing here. Is he simply identifying himself as the person that the soldiers are looking for? I am he. I am Jesus of Nazareth, the one you seek. Or is there something deeper at work? In speaking these two words, Ego, me. I am, Is Jesus taking upon himself the very name of God that was given to Moses all those years ago from the burning bush? I am that I am. From the language itself, it is unclear. However, from the reaction of the soldiers, we see something divine at work. Whatever Jesus' intent in speaking those words, and however he spoke them, there was some force behind those two words that drove 200 soldiers to their knees. Perhaps it was the weight of the glory of God. In the Old Testament, the Hebrews would refer to the glory of God with the word kavod, which comes from a word which means weight. The idea was that when God's glory filled up a space, as it did in the temple in Jerusalem, the force behind the glory was so powerful that it would drive kings and prophets and priests to their knees. This seems to be what happens in the garden when the soldiers are knocked off their feet by the force of Jesus's words. Remember, he had prayed just before they arrived. The hour has come. Glorify the son that I may glorify you. And in the utterance of those two words, Two very simple, everyday sort of words God displays a flash of his glory in the sun, and the soldiers cannot stand under the weight of it. But Jesus does not use that power. That power is harnessed, that power is put aside, and Jesus stands and allows himself to be arrested. As the soldiers pick themselves off the ground and dust themselves off, Jesus asks again, still in full control, whom do you seek? Who are you looking for? The soldiers speak again, Jesus of Nazareth and Jesus repeats himself. I told you, I am he. If I'm the one you're looking for, let these other men go. You see, Jesus had all of this power at his disposal. Power that with only two tiny words, he could knock a band of Roman soldiers off their feet. And yet, he chooses not to use it. And he gives himself up for the disciples that are with him. In that moment, Jesus demonstrates himself to be the good shepherd that he declared in John chapter 10 that he is. He gives his life for the sheep. The sheep are scattered The sheep are scared and they run away, all except for Peter. Peter instead takes the sword from his sheath and decides that he's going to take matters into his own hands. He can control this situation because to Peter, Jesus is the king. To Peter, Jesus is the son of God. And all of these things are true, but Peter does not understand that Jesus has put his power aside and will instead be giving his life for the sheep. Peter takes the sword and cuts off Malchus's ear. Jesus tells him to put the sword away. One theologian has said that in disarming Peter, Jesus has disarmed Christians for all time. Because Jesus is demonstrating in his actions and in his word that true power does not come from might or from weapons or from soldiers. True power comes in laying down one's life for his friends. And so Jesus tells Peter, put that away, and he bends down into the dust, and he picks up the severed ear and reattaches it to Malcolm's head. This is the final miracle that Jesus will perform before his death and resurrection. And it's such a simple, poignant miracle. In a moment when he could use the power of his words to destroy an army, he instead takes the time To reach into the dust and to attach an ear to a lowly servant who has come to arrest him. This is the grace of God. This is the glory of God. The night before in the upper room, Jesus had told his disciple Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. And in the garden, Jesus begins to fully reveal what his father is like. We do not serve a God who knocks down armies with the power of his word, even though he could. We serve a God instead that chooses to give up his life for the sheep, that tells the disciples to put the sword away, that reaches down into the dust to pick up an ear and reattach it to a servant's head. We serve a God of mercy and of grace and of love. That does not mean he is without the power to judge. He certainly is. And the Bible tells us that one day he will use that power. But in the in-between, he has chosen to push it to the side and instead to give his own life for many. This is counter to everything that we believe and understand as humans. We see power and we want to reach out and grab it. That's what the disciples wanted. They wanted Jesus to lead a revolution. They wanted Jesus to conquer Rome and bring Israel to glory once more with them at his side as rulers. But Jesus did not come to lead a revolution. Jesus did not come to reorder the authorities of this world and to give his own people power. Jesus came to lead a resurrection to reorder the powers of sin and death and to give his people life by giving up his own. That is what we see in the final I am of Jesus in the Gospel of John. We see a God with all of his infinite power put it aside and say it is enough and lay down his life for his sheep. The playwright Thornton Wilder wrote a collection of short plays that could all be performed in three or four minutes by three actors at most. One of those plays was called, and the servant's name was Malchus. In the story, which takes place in heaven years from now, Malchus is quite a troublemaker. Not because he does anything wrong, not because he sins, but because he has one gripe, one grief with heaven. And he often shows up at the door of the king's mansion to complain. After many attempts, Gabriel, the gatekeeper, finally lets him through and Malchus stands in the presence of Jesus. Jesus speaks to Malchus and asks him, what could his one complaint in heaven possibly be? And Malchus explains that whenever anyone in heaven is thought of on earth, they can feel it. And so Malchus, when he's thought of on earth, in the midst of the joy of heaven, he can feel that he's being thought of and he knows what people are thinking about. And because his name is here in this story in John chapter 18, when people read his name and think of Malchus, the thought that they have is, wow, he's ridiculous. He gets his ear cut off in a garden. (laughs) What a loser. And so Malchus's one complaint His one grief with heaven is that Jesus would take his name out of the book. Lord, just take my name out of the Bible so that when people think of me, they don't think he's ridiculous. I would prefer that they didn't think of me at all. Of course, all of this is a work of fiction, but in the play, Jesus does exactly what Malchus asks and he removes his name from the book. But after he does it, he pauses for a moment and he says, but Malchus, I, I want you to think about something. Have you ever considered that I'm ridiculous too? Malchus protests and says, no, this, this can't be. You're the Lord of heaven, the maker of the stars. And Jesus interrupts and he goes, no, no, I, I'm ridiculous. Weren't you there in the garden? Didn't you see what happened? I spoke two words. Everyone fell down. I could have used that power. I I didn't. I'm ridiculous too. And when Malchus finally begins to see what Jesus means, Jesus pauses, looks Malchus in the eye and says, Malchus, will you be ridiculous with me? And Malchus understands that Jesus, the king of heaven, the maker of the cosmos, the son of God in human flesh, the great I am, gave up his life for the sheep. He set aside his power and his majesty so that he could sacrifice himself. And from a human's perspective, there is literally nothing more ridiculous than that. And yet it is also the answer to Jesus' prayer. Because in the ridiculousness of his arrest and his beating and his crucifixion, we most clearly see the glory of God. Jesus says, Malchus, will you be ridiculous with me? And Malchus moved beyond himself says, yes, sir, I'll stay. I'm glad to stay in the book. Though, in a way, I really haven't any right to be there. And that's what makes Jesus' love so ridiculous. None of us have a right to his love. None of us have a right to a sacrifice. And yet, the great I am says, I will give my life.